Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series this week, Empowered Living, with a message entitled, All We Were Meant to Be. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Let's begin by reading Ephesians 1, 15 to 19a. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now this passage, of which I have read only a half, is one of the great prayers of the Bible. It's a prayer of request, a petition, if you will. But as Paul approaches God to petition him on behalf of his readers, we also notice that he's filled with thankfulness. The thankfulness is not how we typically think of thankfulness. You know, for instance, at Thanksgiving time, when we gather in church, it's often the custom to place pumpkins, apples, bowls of grain, bread, stalks of corn, and what have you, in a beautiful display in the front of the church worship center. These are supposed to remind us of the rich bounty we've enjoyed throughout the year, and we're supposed to lift our voices to God and give thanks for all his provision. But let's not stop doing that. After all, Romans 1 tells us that the road to spiritual darkness begins as we fail to give thanks to God for what he's done. As we give thanks to God for our food, well, we've also got to give thanks for our families and our health, our jobs, the country we live in, the absence of warfare, the peace we enjoy. The list simply goes on and on. But in all these areas in which we are morally bound to give thanks, it's also important that we give thanks for our spiritual blessings. You know, the passage I've just read is one of the great prayers of the Bible. It's a prayer filled with thankfulness, but this thankfulness is not about our physical blessings. It's a, it's a prayer of thankfulness for the rich spiritual blessings we have in Christ. In fact, this prayer is a two-fold prayer. It begins with thankfulness, and then it ends with a serious request. The request is that we would begin to have the eyes to see just how spiritually rich every Christian is. Now, before we dive right into this prayer, let me do a brief review. This entire chapter is an expansion of Ephesians 1.3. Let's go back to that verse and refresh our memories. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let me tell you two extremes that Christians fall into. The first extreme is what I call poor little spiritual rich boy syndrome. This is the extreme that takes no account of everything that Christ has already done for us, and instead, it's constantly looking for new spiritual blessings that we think are missing from our lives. So I hear Christian people saying, you know, I think I'm lacking something in my life. I, I believe I need to go deeper or go higher or get more of something. And we're restless to find out what we didn't get at our conversion. Listen to me, if you're a believer, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've genuinely surrendered your life into his hands, hear me, you're not missing anything. You've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms. You understand how profound that is. So let's not say, woe is me, I'm so poor. 
Rather, let's overflow with praise. Second extreme, it's the extreme there, Cinderella with amnesia syndrome. Remember Cinderella? She was the poor despised daughter who became a princess, but what if she got amnesia and forgot who she was? What if she went back to the cinders and ashes and the ugly and cruel stepsisters? And what if she carried her life as if there was no Prince Charming and no glass slippers and no chariot and horses and no place of honor? What if she decided that her wretched existence was all she'd ever have? That's the extreme of Christians who are defeated. They've no spiritual appetite to know and experience their blessings more deeply. They've forgotten who they are, and they live a life of spiritual poverty while all the wealth of heaven is at their disposal. The Father has given them a blank check, and they've never bothered to cash it. What launches this great prayer of Paul is a fundamental truth. Paul knows something that all truly converted believers must know. We've already been blessed so well that we lack no spiritual blessing. Let's remind ourselves of that. Number one, we're chosen by God and adopted into his family so that we are forever the objects of his love. Two, we've been redeemed out of the prison house of slavery to sin, the flesh, the devil, the world. None of the negative things that once controlled us can now rule us. Three, we've been forgiven all of our sins. Jesus' death on the cross means nothing can now be done to count against us. Number four, God has revealed to us the mystery of his will. He's not left us in the dark as to what he has in store for us. Five, we're marked by the Holy Spirit who now lives in us and is now the seal that we belong to God and he's the down payment of what is to come. That's what God has done. You know, a story is told of of the newspaper giant William Randolph Hearst. Hearst was an avid art collector, and he had a rather large collection of rare and expensive pieces. And one day, he read of an extremely beautiful and valuable work of art, and he decided he has to have it. He'd never be happy without it. In fact, his collection was barren without it. He instructed his agent to go out and find it, but the agent couldn't locate it. He was instructed to try harder, and the agent scoured all the art galleries of the world. That were months of painstaking search. Finally, he reported back to Mr. Hurst, and Hurst asked him if he had bought it, to which the agent said, no. Why, roared Hurst. Well, because, said the agent, we found it's in one of your warehouses. You already own that painting. You bought it years ago. We're all like that if we've not taken stock of what we have in Christ. We, We simply need to go to our spiritual warehouses and pull it out. See, that's why after blessing God for the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, Paul launches into first a hymn of worship, and then he prays earnestly for the believers who are reading this letter. So let's look what Paul thanks God for. Verses 15 to 16a. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I did not cease to give thanks for you. For this reason, well, that's a reference to every spiritual blessing every single believer has. Because that's true of all believers, says Paul, and because I've heard something very exciting about you. Now, we already know that that Paul has spent considerable time in Ephesus, so we might wonder why he has to depend on a report from others about how the Ephesian Christians are doing. But if I've been right about the Ephesian letter, it's not just meant for the Ephesian Christians— but all the other Christians in the surrounding cities, well, then it makes sense. Paul has been hearing from various colleagues and fellow missionaries and from his own missionary team how the believers in that region are doing. And Paul sees two elements in the lives of these believers. 
It is faith and love. And seeing those two elements in their lives, he sees external evidence for the genuineness of their faith. He knows they're authentic Christians. He knows they actually have received every spiritual blessing. And for that reason, Paul launches out into thanksgiving. And we can turn this around and say that our blessings in Christ always then result in the two essential things that Paul mentions in his thanksgiving. See, they always result in faith in the Lord Jesus or a confident trust in Jesus in all things. Also, our spiritual blessings in Christ always result in overflowing love for all God's people. Every Christian both believes and trusts his or her Savior and also loves fellow believers. It's a mark of every believer. If you know Christ, it's basic to who you are. It's impossible to be in Christ and not find oneself drawn to Christ, believe in his promises, apply them to our daily existence. It's our new nature in Christ that we place our entire lives and our future into Christ, depending on his promises. It's also impossible to be in Christ and and not deeply love the people of God. And whenever and wherever you see those two items, you see the outworking of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. One we might ask, why then does Paul not end his prayer right there? I mean, why pray for anything for them, seeing that they already have everything? And the majority of Paul's prayer in this passage is not praise, but it's a prayer that he keeps on asking of God. In other words, he pleads with God over and over again, but for what? And the what is what should fascinate us. Today, there are 1.6 billion websites on how to get rich quick. I'm, I'm only joking. You know, but our TVs promise that a newer car, a colder drink, or a bigger house will be just the ticket to bring joy. But if money were the key to happiness, we'd be the happiest culture in history. Instead, we access more psychologists, lawyers, and antidepressants than any previous generation. So what makes life rich? Well, this month, Phil Calloway uncovers some answers in the new Laugh Again booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich. Money is a blessing when held in our hands, but never in our hearts. To request your copy of the booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich, as our free gift during the month of May, visit us online at backtothebible.ca or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. We're about to see that in spite of Paul's gratitude to God for the Ephesians believers, he's not satisfied with what he sees in them, nor should he be. So what's he looking for? Well, look again at verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Yeah, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ, yet we still need two things. First, we need wisdom and revelation to know God better. And that's the crux of the matter. Philosophy says, know thyself, but we say, know God. I think here is the heart of the matter. So many of us are completely taken up in self-knowledge and self-improvement and self-whatever. It's always self, it's always me, it's always I. 
We live in a generation consumed with fascination over self. We spent our lifetime staring at ourselves in a mirror. It's this that has driven an entire industry in our culture. You see, the fact that we feel we're missing something surrounds the fact that our self is missing a lot. See, you can't be all that you are meant to be by looking at yourself. That's not where the riches lie. They lie in God. But what does it mean to know God? Well, the English use of the word know is sometimes confusing. See, we might speak of knowing someone casually. See, I can say, you know, I know my university professor, or I know my boss, or I know the store clerk. But that's not what's intended here. We might even speak of knowing someone well, as in, well, I know my wife or my husband or my friend, but even that's not intended here. Paul often has a prayer that his disciples might know God. You know, the kind of knowing that he speaks of is personal and intimate, but it's also life-transforming. So here's an illustration. I want you to imagine a man on a business trip. He's been away from his wife and family for several weeks due to an important assignment from his company, and he gets lonely and he's tired. He sleeps in a motel room. He's been working late every evening, and one evening, one of his single female colleagues invites him to come home with her, have supper at her house. She's beautiful, he's vulnerable, he's flattered, the invitation seems inviting. For a moment, he thinks he's going to do just that, but then he says he can't. Why, she asks. Have you got work tonight? No, he says. I'm actually free tonight. The reason I can't come is I know God. So what's he saying? Well, he's saying that the kind of knowing that he has transforms who he is. It's the kind of knowing that has come to understand that love and true love comes from God and is subject to God. And that's what Paul wants for us. He wants us to know God more. And you might say, well, that's what I want for myself too. I want that life-transforming kind of knowing. How do I get that kind of knowing? How do I know God so well that I come to be like him? See, it's one thing to desire it. It's another thing to live in the reality of it. Oh, to know God. Paul says that the way to that knowledge comes through a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Wisdom has nothing to do with your score on an IQ test. Wisdom has to do with a knowledge of God's will as it works itself out in everyday practical reality. Wisdom is about the way we live our lives, the kinds of decisions we make, the the kind of thoughts we think. Wisdom is God's pathway for living. It means choosing the right and rejecting the wrong, choosing that which is holy and rejecting that which is vile. But the word wisdom does not stand alone in Paul's prayer. He doesn't pray, I ask God that you give a spirit of wisdom to know God better. He prays for a wisdom and revelation. See, revelation comes from the word reveal. That is to say, God has to show it to you. You don't discover it on your own. The wisdom for knowing God, this wisdom for having the kind of relationship with God that transforms us, this knowledge must come by revelation. You can't produce it on your own. See, I'll never forget the story of a woman named Kathy. Kathy came to Christ, and one week later, she told me what had occurred to her on the day after her conversion. She took the car to work as she normally did, fighting with traffic, but that day was so different. As she saw the first rays of sunshine coming over the horizon, she was suddenly struck with the sense that daylight and even the sun itself was evidence of the handiwork of the God who had entered into her life. She saw flocks of birds flying overhead and marveled at their beauty, the wonder of their flight, and the great variety of creatures God had placed into the world. 
she told me that the world was charged with the grandeur of God and that this same God had forgiven her. She told me that it seemed that she had never seen the world before. See, that's the spirit of revelation. In other words, God is giving her something. And when it comes to knowing God, Paul wants us to understand that we already have that as a blessing. Remember verse 3? What we need is for the Holy Spirit to show us what we have. That's why the second request is exactly what the first request is. Look again at verses 18 to 19a. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. See, we need to open the eyes of our heart, or at least we need the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our heart. We need to see the invisible. We need to see with our heart. That's crucial. You know, some of us have only seen with our physical eyes. That's why we can't see all our spiritual blessings. Imagine what is truly in a room. Well, look around. What do you see? You might see people and furniture and perhaps, you know, paintings on the wall and so forth. But think of what you can't see. You can't see the physical particles or the elements that hold things together. There are other things that you can't see. Christ is there by his spirit. You can't see that. All our physical eyes give us is a very selective picture of reality. There's an ocean of reality that's out there that you've never been programmed to see. You'll never see it because your eyes are not engineered to see it. Now imagine you have another set of eyes. They're the eyes of your heart. These eyes can see the spiritual blessings. You see, in our culture, we tend to you know, use the term heart for the center of our emotions. So we might mistakenly think that Paul's telling us to see with our emotions. And we often talk about the difference between our head and our heart that way. And when we talk that way, we mean that we're in a quandary as to what to do. We see two separate motivations for activity. But even though that's what we think when we think of heart, it's important to ask, what does Paul mean when he says eyes of your heart? See, in Paul's day, the term heart had an entirely different connotation. The heart was the center from which came the motivation for all the decisions that are made. You know, it's the seat of our thoughts and our emotions and our spiritual life. Most importantly, it's the seat of the will. In other words, all your actions are motivated by your heart. Let's say you become angry and you use profanity. Where did that come from, you say? And the Bible answer is, it comes from your heart. It's in the heart that we become aware of the presence of God. It's out of the heart that actions flow. So when the Holy Spirit enlightens your heart, you'll begin to think and act in line with God's will. See, what happens then? Well, Paul says three things happen. First, you'll know what is the hope to which he has called you. That is, you'll keep on reveling in your inheritance. You will, as a son or daughter of God, one day be called upon to rule and reign with Christ. Second, you'll see what are the riches of his, that is, God the Father's glorious inheritance in the saints. That is, you'll see how marvelous it is to have inherited God's presence and his blessings. I mean, of all things that you have, what can possibly be compared with having inherited the favor of God and the awesome glory of God? And thirdly, you'll see what is the greatness of his power toward us who believe. How many Christians are blind to this one truth? And there I mean the truth that Paul expresses in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Indeed, when we say that the infinitely glorious God is our God, we are saying that God uses all his resources as God for our benefit. 
You know, that's the prayer for truly regenerate believers, that we might finally see how rich we are, how many blessings God has caused to overflow to us, to see the resources that he has made available to us. You know, for those who trust truly in Christ, for those who truly love the brotherhood, to actually see who we are, that's an amazing blessing that God has given us. If only we had the eyes of our heart to see. Before we can live that out, all we're meant to be, we need to open our eyes, or we need to let the Holy Spirit open our eyes to see what God has already made available to us. See, once we do, I think we'll never complain about our spiritual poverty ever again. Rather, we'll begin to praise God for our rich spiritual wealth, riches beyond belief. How sorrowful for those who count only on earthly riches. And when they do, those riches will soon be gone. They don't have the eyes to see how temporary all those things actually are. How sad it must be for Christians to have all those spiritual riches and not be overflowing each day with praise, thanking God constantly for just how much we really do have. Thanks so much for your message today, John. You know, I got to ask you, doesn't it seem somewhat incongruent that one can be a Christian and be a grouch? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, 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 I suppose I would begin by saying I, I plead guilty at times. Uh, I have to, because if my wife were allowed this microphone, she might say, yes, he has been a grouch at times. Uh, but I would hope that we can't be a long-term grouch. Uh, That is to say that the promises of God have to continue to filter through our own mindset. We need to keep coming back to God in repentance and saying, Oh, Lord, I have not believed your promises to me. I have forgotten that I have been blessed in every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. I know that's been what you have given me. Uh, Enlighten my heart so that I could truly know and experience, understand, see what you have done. Uh, You know, at that point in time, I do think the grouchiness goes away. It's replaced by overwhelming thankfulness, hymns of praise. All glory be to God. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Empowered Living, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. In the spring of 2022, we have an exciting ministry vacation event designed just for you as we extend an invitation to journey with us for the Back to the Bible Canada's Israel experience. Travel to the Holy Land and experience many of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others walked. Visit the Garden Tomb and and sail the Sea of Galilee as we worship together. Enjoy on-location Bible teaching with Dr. Newfeld and be encouraged in sharing the laughter with Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway. Experience all Israel has to offer with an intimate group of Christian friends. Don't miss this wonderful limited registration opportunity to visit the Holy Land and be inspired and refreshed in your walk with Jesus. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.